Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast brought to you by the Oregonian and Oregon Live. I am James Creppy, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Of course, appreciate everybody for checking out all of our content all the time. Uh, they are on OregonLive.com as well as in the Oregonian, uh, Twitter, you name it. Uh, we're fledgling into the Twitter spaces realm as well uh, to engage with folks. Certainly look forward to doing more of that. And uh, engaging with the folks who are already kind of there organically and doing that on an even more uh, frequent basis uh, with uh, the Ducks Confidential uh, aspect of things and doing some Q&As and stuff. We'll, we'll sprinkle that in as editions uh, of the podcast uh, throughout the season and uh, as the year goes on as well. So on this edition of things, as the season has gotten underway, we'll obviously take a look back at the season opener that was uh, for Oregon and Georgia and 49-3. to And we're not going to belabor the points because... And it gets to a point of what is there to say. We know it was obviously just a uh, brutal performance. And we'll take a look ahead to this week and the matchup with Eastern Washington. Chat with Dan Thompson of uh, the Spokesman Review. He covers the Eagles uh, for the Spokesman Review. So we'll chat with him uh, this week as well. But to take a look back at 49-3 to and the outcome that was, uh, as I wrote after the game and uh, in our weekly takeaways piece, if you get too caught up in, and I realize, look, this is not sunshine pumping. This is not looking for silver linings. This is not. I think folks who've obviously uh, read my work over the years covering this program and um, heard us on the podcast and every which other platform know that's that's not what I'm about. Uh, I'm going to call it what it is. It was a terrible performance in pretty much every phase of the game. There were very, very few uh, positives really to be taken in my assessment. But Having said that, there are going to be many the team, many the team, who get absolutely demolished by Georgia this year. And look no further than the college football playoff over the last couple of years by way of the matchups with Georgia and Alabama to see that you can be a not just a good team, you can be a great team. You can be a playoff team. You could be undefeated or have one loss and play one of those two juggernauts right now and get absolutely run off the field. And that's happened before. It will probably continue to happen, <laughs> quite honestly. And that's the way it goes. And for Oregon on Saturday, did they, in an outcome that was going to be a Georgia win regardless, did Oregon also 
do the things to beat itself to make a bad performance or a losing performance worse? Yes. And those are the things that should frustrate Ducks fans, and I'm sure have frustrated Ducks fans over the course of the week. Because it's one thing to be just plain outclassed by an opponent. Look, Darnell Washington's on one team. Brock Bauer's on one team. And Oregon's not going to have to play them again this year. And not just this year. They're never going to have to play them again. You are not going to see a 6'7", 6'8", 250-pound tight end who moves like Darnell Washington moves ever again. For one team to have that that position, there's a reason why that tight end room is known to be far and away, not close, no argument, no <laughs> nothing to the contrary, the best tight end room in the country. They are. They showed it. They proved it. Were they replacing some guys at running back? Yeah. Were Milton and McIntosh known to be the lead to heir parents? Yes. Did they prove it? Yeah. And at times, some of their performances and how they were able to get their yards, particularly on the perimeter, particularly on yards after the catch and the receiving game, that had to frustrate Oregon fans. Is McConkie a good player? Absolutely. Did Oregon also make him look even better than he is at times? Yeah. But again, it goes beyond all of that. Stetson Bennett wins a national championship all offseason most of the Georgia fan base, all they would have to say was, you know, whether or not there's actually a competition, is he absolutely going to be the starter? Does he absolutely have to be the starter? Can he actually bring us back to another national championship? Because after all, we all know he's not the guy. He's not that good. And the Oregon defense made him look like a Heisman favorite. No, 25 of 31 for 368 in Barely 40 minutes. Those are the things. Those are the stat lines. Those are the measures that Oregon fans, I'm sure, have been frustrated about this week. Every question that we had of this defense all offseason, anyone objectively looking at that defense, beyond, oh, well, Dan Landing and Tasha Poy are going to come in and everything's going to be more aggressive and they're going to get more production from certain guys. And over the course of the season, I'm sure that will hold true. But beyond the wide-eyed optimism that those results would just automatically happen, there had to be a tinge, and I would hope there was from from fans. Again, I I certainly tried to provide it by way of you know an objective assessment heading into this game. Was hey, where where is all this pass rush going to come from? Hey, you lost a Thorpe Award finalist an All-American in the secondary who led the country in interceptions, where are the takeaways coming from? You know, if it's so obvious, if it's so immediate, if it's so, duh, of course it's going to come from A, B, C, and D. Okay. I'm not refuting, and I'm not saying that Oregon doesn't have some damn good players on defense. But to just assume that they were going to show up against Georgia and that those results are going to be there, I think was probably a bridge too far. And obviously by the result, you know, Unfortunately for the Ducks, that that proved to be the case. Georgia's got a damn good offensive line. Really good offensive line. They may be one of the top five offensive lines in the sport, and they may not have a first-round pick on that offensive line. They're still really freaking good. 
And they didn't even necessarily show it all the time because, yeah, they got the ball to the perimeter and did a lot of damage. A lot. Pass rush was non-existent. Negative plays were virtually non-existent. Some of that by design and by scheme from what Georgia was doing, credit where it's due. Some of that because, quite frankly, Oregon just couldn't generate any. Georgia starts off 9 of 9, ends up 9 of 10 on third down. All of it third and short or third and medium, except for the first attempt on third and 11. And that was way too easy. Way too easy a conversion. And everything from there is shorter. Well, then it's only about third downs, which 9 of 10 would lead you to believe. And that's going to be a crooked number and a difficult number for Oregon to overcome for quite a while. They're not going to fix that in a week. They're not going to be able to pad that stat back by playing Eastern Washington. I don't care if they hold Eastern Washington 0 of 10. 50% is still going to be brutal. So that's going to look like an ugly number for a while. With a 9 of 10 against you. And that's historically bad. But it's not as simple as, well, you just got to make the play on third down and that's it. When you're living in third and medium and third and short all day, it's not just about third down. That's, frankly, more concerning to Oregon and should be more concerning to Ducks fans than if it were just, oh, well, you just got to make those plays on those eight, nine, ten plays that come up in a game. You just got to make those plays. No. No. It's not as simple as that. You wish it was. When you're living in third and medium and third and short especially, the chances of conversion are in the offense's favor in third and short. So it's about making better plays and making stops on first and second down, especially first down. Georgia averaged over nine yards a play in the game. Doesn't really matter what you do on third down when that's happening. On first downs, they were averaging a huge clip of yards. Huge. Those are the stops that they have to start making first. You got to be able to make stops and prevent the opposing team from getting chunk plays over and over and over and over again. Way before you worry about just making the stops on third down. And Stetson Bennett had a field day, a career high. Georgia had 12 pass plays of 15 plus yards in the game. And Carson Beck only had two of them. I say those are the issues. Like, that's just the start of the issues on defense. Everybody can point to the tackling. That's obvious. Anyone who, who, even if you know nothing about football, you know, ultimately you got to get a guy down. And if you're missing tackles or having tackles broken or, you know, just being left in the dirt, that, that has to improve. That's a given. But even if you were better at tackling in certain areas, yeah, that may get some of the yards after catch, yards after contact back in a little bit of a degree of check. But ultimately, that in and of itself is not going to solve your ills. That alone was not going to stop all the issues. This Oregon defense, which was bad against third downs last season. Yeah, oh, well, it's one game and it's against an elite team. Absolutely. But some of the very issues that we raised throughout the course of last season and throughout the times of the offseason are still there and you got no answers. 
And again, this week against Eastern Washington is not going to be suddenly the supply of those answers because that's not going to tell you much. And okay, well, that's a given. Okay, that's an FCS opponent. Understandable. Well, what about the following week against BYU? Well, we'll talk about them the following week. But in the big picture, I understand that for this fan base, there does come a point. And yes, this is year one of Dan Lanning. I understand that. And his regime and his coaching staff and this defense, a lot of the defensive players learning their third system in three years. I that is none of that is lost on me. But in the big picture, this is not year one of a coaching staff that took over some massive rebuild where everything was a mess. This is year one of what is the fifth year of a process with a team that has top 10 talent in the sport, a second year in a row with a quarterback starting who is a transfer quarterback in a place that has probably gotten a little bit spoiled by the caliber of quarterback play, quite honestly. And caliber running back play, for that matter. And has grown accustomed to that. And you don't want to see your starting quarterback in there making mistakes that a freshman makes when he's a fourth-year starter in decision-making. And ultimately, in the big picture, you don't want to hear in September about, well, you don't have answers yet after game one. You're not going to have them after game two. We're not going to know everything. You're not going to have all the answers yet about this team until September or October. And that may not be unusual in college football, but I perfectly understand that for a Ducks fan base who wants this team badly to be a playoff team, badly to be among the elite in the sport, and sees the trajectory headed that way, that 49-3 to makes you question, hey, wait a minute, when is it going to be our time? Yeah, they may be one of those teams. That may be one of those programs. And yeah, we all we really want to get there eventually. But what is eventually? I perfectly get that for fans who are frustrated and saying, you know, I don't want to hear in September that we're a team who's in a program who's constantly, oh, well, we're not going to have the answers yet. When do you transition to becoming the program who has the answers immediately because you have them? I understand that. Now, understanding it, recognizing it, and, and you know, I, I can't do anything for you with it. <laughs> that does <laughs> I'm not the one who's going to have all the answers. I'm not the one coaching, recruiting, or anything else. So don't look at me. But I get it. I get the perspectives. I get the perspectives of those who say, look, this is this was ugly as sin, and ultimately there's still plenty of the season to go, and we'll see what the season has in store one way or the other. And what can you do about it? And I also understand that for all of those things said, those in the fan base who were really frustrated and downright angry because you want your team to be taking steps in a positive direction and to be in a far more competitive spot, the 49-3. But having said that, I think it's a little bit too early to say the sky is falling. And simultaneously, I think it is way, way too easy and rose-colored glasses to simply sweep this one under the rug and say, Georgia's Georgia. They've got, look at the bevy of five stars they've got. And what are you going to do? And they're just one of the best teams. And they are one of the best teams. But, you know, there's just no matching them right now. And, yeah, just don't even bother. No, there's a lot of things to fix and correct. Defense, starting defensively. Offensively, like I say, I, I actually think 
offensive line in particular, more than held its own, more than held its own against Jalen Carter and a really talented front seven. No, Oregon didn't always run between the tackles, nor did Georgia. They both tried to hit the perimeter a lot for exactly that reason. You understand it, frankly, you understand it more from Oregon's perspective because you had to get the heck away from Jalen Carter. (laughs) But Georgia didn't always run a ton between the tackles. Georgia's longest run in the game was 12 yards. Perimeter tackles are not. So as rough as the defense was for Oregon, again, in the ground game, I'm not going to make 5.3 yards per carry allowed out to be a good number. It's not. But in terms of, you know, was the top blown off either the coverage or even in the run game, even with the missed tackles, on a couple of pass plays that were shorter that turned into longer plays, yes. But in terms of ball over the head, no. That didn't happen. Didn't happen. Ground game, again, I'm not going to make the average out to be good, but it was more on the perimeter than between the tackles. Offensively for Oregon, 4.5 plus yards per carry was one of the higher numbers that George has allowed the last three years. Now, again, I'm not trying to, to decorate something that was ugly. It was ugly. But you got to call it what it was. They still managed to gain some yards. They were moving the ball at times quite effectively. Even before the final drive and 19 plays and stalling and, you know, goal line and all that, even before that, they were moving the ball fairly well at times. That's the sliver of positivity you're able to take away is that with a first time play calling offensive coordinator and a new starting quarterback with unproven skill players and a rotation at, at running back and tight end, particularly at running back, that was extraordinarily difficult to understand that they managed to move the ball successfully at times, at times in spite of themselves. So that part of it, I think you can actually take as a sliver of positivity. Yes, not extraordinarily so admittedly, but a sliver of positivity there. I do. I think there is something to be said for that. Now, again, I, Hey, the long interception from Bo Nix. I'm not knocking the decision. It was an incredible play by Malachi Starks. You could argue about body positioning with McGee, but ultimately, all right, you take that. Now it's more about the defense than allows a 90-plus yard touchdown drive on the ensuing possession. The second one, that's, I mean, that that there's, I mean, there's no positive to say about that at all. The second one is just a, a inexplicable decision. Period. And he said as much, and Lanning said as much after the game, and that's what it is. But that's a backbreaker. Because if 14 nothing, and you're driving and you're near the red zone, if they even get a field goal there, you're on the board, you're feeling different about things. If they get a touchdown at 14-7, I'm not saying you're going to win the game, but at 14-7, it's a whole other ball game. At From 14 nothing to 14-7 is one thing. From 14 nothing to 21 nothing, and looking like an avalanche is about to hit, that's a whole other direction. And obviously, we know which way it went. So, again, Oregon wasn't going to win the game regardless. But if it's 14-7 and things are a little bit more competitive, you're feeling everyone in the building is feeling a little bit differently. Even if it turns back to 21-7, fine, it feels different. But it completely gets away from them after that second interception. As I say, it's, it's just a total deluge at that point. Nothing else after that, frankly, nothing after 21, nothing really made a lick of a difference because, again, it was it was so over. But, I mean, it's amazing. again, we're not going to believe the point. 
as a whole, we know how the game went. Defensively, still so many areas, they say to me, that have a lot of question marks. A lot of question marks. And question marks that you're not going to get all the answers to this week. You're not. I don't care if they have 10 sacks this week. That is not, and, and they're not going to, by the way. Because this Eastern Washington offensive line has some measurable bodies. You know, this is not an FCS team where the offensive line is averaging, you know, 6'3, 275. That's not the case. You know, they may be a bigger, stronger, and faster team than Eastern Washington top to bottom. They are obviously a more talented team than Eastern Washington top to bottom, but I don't think this Oregon defense is just going to go out there and get in the backfield and have 20 negative plays. No, I don't. There are FCS teams they could play where they absolutely could do that. Eastern's not one of those teams. It's not. So you're not going to have all the answers defensively. You're not going to have all the answers to where the tackles for loss coming from, where this, where's the pass rush coming from, how have we figured out things on third down, where are the takeaways coming from. You're not going to have all those answers. Not this week, probably not the week after against BYU, quite honestly. Offensively, again, some slivers to take in terms of positively from moving the ball. Uh, from a rotation standpoint at running back, I think that absolutely is going to change. I don't know if it's going to change radically this week necessarily, but it is absolutely going to change because it has to, because I don't think that is sustainable in the long run to have five running backs play in every single game. Uh, and for the fifth running back at the very end to end up being the leading um, rusher from an attempt standpoint uh, outside of your quarterback, no less. I don't think that's sustainable at all. And elite teams have proven that that is not a sustainable model if you're going to compete for uh, conference championships and those sorts of things across college football. Nobody has been able to sustain that over a long run. Yeah, it's one game. It's one game. Right. But one game against an elite opponent with elite defense, that was not the rotation model um, and distribution model to be following. So I think there will be changes there. I don't know if we'll see them this week, but we'll see. And again, a receiver, a tight end. Everybody can point to, well, this this player should have gotten the ball more. This player should have gotten the ball more. This guy should have been more involved. This Where was this guy? Hey, one game, one sample for one, two. There's 37 pass attempts, and there's only so many times, ultimately. There's, there's only so many balls to go around. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm whoever you're arguing on behalf of, I'm not arguing to the contrary. I'm simply saying, no matter who's in the rotation, no matter who's being targeted, sooner or later, even if you point out the guy or guys who you wanted to get the ball more, that it's coming at the expense of somebody else. You may be okay with that, but your idea and your vision for what the distribution should be at receiver is going to be different than mine, is going to be different than somebody else's, is going to be different than the coaching staff, is going to be different than a player on the team. So that, I think, just is going to take time. It just is. Because, as we talked about most of the offseason, certainly I was, these are unproven skill position players. So it is not unbelievable that early in the season, you're going to see a pretty wide distribution until and unless guys prove it. Well, how do you prove it if you're not given the opportunity? Well, again, we have the chicken or the egg argument in perpetuity. Eventually, it'll happen. So we'll see what happens with this week with Eastern Washington. Obviously, from an outcome standpoint, I don't think you have much to be concerned about. But from a big picture standpoint, still so many questions facing this team and this program early on. Like I say, I don't think the sky is falling perspective is uh, in check and in reality at all. 
nor do I think a well, you know, just just blow it off and and uh, brush it off as uh, George is just simply one of those top two or three teams, along with Alabama and Ohio State, that nobody else can possibly contend with, and therefore don't even worry about it. Again, it's one thing to go out in a close competitive situation, and hey, what are you going to do? I at forty nine to three. And with the caliber of tackling, with third down defense, with decision making on offense, with you name it, all the things we just identified, those are the things. I say Georgia was winning that game regardless. Oregon made it a lot easier on them to make it look even worse than it had to be. And those are the things that the Ducks have to work on this week. And like I say, not just this week, for weeks to come to become the consistent level of performance and to achieve the things that they are still able to achieve. They're still able to contend for and win a conference championship and go to a New Year's Six game and all those things. But can it get away from them just as fast as 49-3 did if they don't start to find some answers in a hurry because BYU is coming up and because conference play is not that far off, obviously, thereafter? Yeah. So lots of things still to fix. We'll chat with Dan Thompson of the Spokesman Review, get some insight on Eastern Washington, Ducks opponents this week for this home opener, given that the Ducks are playing their FCS opponent this week. Uh, not a uh, bevy of folks who cover Eastern Washington, so Dan is uh, covering all bases for us, hopping on the uh, Ducks Confidential podcast with us, also did our uh, Q&A with the uh, opposing beat reporter, so uh, at this point I, I owe Dan a drink. Uh, will you be coming down to, to Eugene uh, for the game there? I am actually. We've got uh, we've got family in Portland, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave one of my kids there and then drive the rest of the way myself. Outstanding, outstanding. Well, like I say, I certainly uh, owe you for, <laughs> for all your contributions to us this week. Um, for folks who are uh, first getting truly uh, acquainted with Eastern Washington, obviously plenty of folks in the uh, Portland area of Portland State and all that who uh, are a bit familiar themselves. But for those who are a little bit less uh, acquainted, they know obviously the red turf. They know uh, that. They're, they are a stronger program in the big sky. Uh, historically speaking, I've had some success, beat UNLV last year uh, in the season opener. But outside of those sort of uh, factoids, uh, what should Ducks fans know about this Eastern Washington team coming into Otson on Saturday? So I, I think they should know that in some sense, even people in Spokane don't totally know what this team is going to be. Because I think anytime you've had to replace a quarterback like Eric Berrier, who was so good and played for so many years here. I mean, it's just, it has felt like it's been a while since they've even had a change over at quarterback because Barry took over mid season uh, when he took over too. So we haven't really entered into a season like this, watching Eastern Washington with a new guy, especially somebody who for as long as Gunnar Talkington's been around, he's actually very much an unknown really. Um, and yet coaches have talked about how, well, we're leaning into the system. They say, you know, the system has always been good for us. And obviously they've had great quarterback play for a long time. So they're going to see a team that wants to pass the ball. Uh, that's what they did in the opener. That's what they've traditionally always done. I think a team that wants to run more than it did last week. And, uh, and then also a defense that can come up in big spots when they need to, but has also had a history the last year and a half um, of giving up a lot of yards. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Talkington. Who, again, this is the quarterback, uh, new quarterback for Eastern Washington. New in terms of that he's the new starter, but uh, as you were alluding to there, uh, not new by way of new to the program. Uh, he is a redshirt senior, but uh, he was just behind some guys and behind a guy who was you know, an All-American at the FCS level. So here he is at 5'10", 215, uh, a fourth-year player, been around for a minute, fifth-year player, been around a minute, but 
just hasn't played a lot. And here he has uh, his massive opportunity, obviously, this season. Uh, other than his diminutive stature, which is not uh, in and of itself a, a huge surprise at the FCS level sometimes, uh, what should folks know about Talkington? Even just watching him this year, he's got a stronger arm than I expected to have him to have, and, and even stronger, I feel like, than I saw him in, in the relief roles. And coaches have talked about that, too, where they feel like he's really going for it more. He's a confident guy who really knows this offense. Um, and as much as they have changed over coordinators, again, at their core, they're, they're not very different than what they've always been. Um, he's poised. He is beloved by his teammates. And I think they really respect the fact that he has stuck around. He could have left. Um, and it was kind of, it's, it's an interesting story because he, he, he was a walk-on originally and he wasn't really recruited very much, which is kind of rare for Eastern Washington's quarterbacks. Usually they've got guys who were, you know, fringe guys, like one of their main recruits last season ended up at Fresno State uh, instead of Eastern. And that's the kind of guy they normally get, right? They get the guy who's on the cusp of the F FBS as well. Um, so he's just worked really hard. And he's kind of found ways to get into games as a holder. He's been their holder for a long time. Um, and just he's always kind of shown up to be the backup. It's really it's really a pretty cool story. At the skill positions, I know it kind of starts with uh, Efton Chisholm since he's the uh, All-American caliber receiver they've got. Uh, who are some of the other guys at the skill positions who uh, Ducks fans are going to be hearing uh you know, hearing their names called, at least in terms of balls targeted, whether or not the ball gets there has gone up to the Ducks defense, I suppose. But who, who will be uh, the targets uh, for Talkington to be uh, aiming for? So one of his main ones is Freddie Roberson, uh, who's a senior as well, who's been around for a long time. Um, he's going to be more of the deep threat, more of the guy down by the sidelines. Uh, you'll, yes, you mentioned Efton Chisholm III. He's going to be running across the middle quite a bit. He's kind of all over the place. Uh, Nolan Ulm has really emerged. He, he had a lot of catches. Let me look at his stats. I think he had five catches in the first game. Um, three catches, sorry. He had a lot of targets. And also just more tight ends. Uh, guys like Blake Goble. Um, he's, he's stepped up. So there's a lot of new names even in, in, in the Eastern Washington circles. But I'd say the main ones, Freddie Roberson and Efton Chisholm. And then at running back, Still kind of seeing. <laughs> uh, Justice Jackson had the most carries, but that was only seven. Tuna Altahir, who maybe has the best name on the team, uh, he's a Reg refreshment that they really like. I would, I would, I'm curious to see who actually emerges though if they have a primary ball carrier this season. Giant with Dan Thompson at the Spokesman Review, getting a little bit of a uh, preview of this weekend's game between the Ducks and Eastern Washington. By the measurables, by size, Dan, it certainly looks on the depth chart that offensively speaking, outside of talking to him being a little bit short, for sure. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, uh, credit to Eastern Washington that, you know, at the FCS level, I, sometimes you really don't know what you're going to get by way of the offensive line. They have a lot of guys who are 300-plus pounds, so they have the height and the size and the build uh, at a lot of spots, offensively speaking. I'd say where it probably stands out by way of uh, not, to, you know, we'll get into the talent disparity. That's That's kind of a given. But in terms of the size disparity, uh, and just physical disparity, I think that's probably going to come across more when Oregon's on offense and Eastern's on defense, where their defensive front, again, not not knocking these guys. It's just sure. the fact that the reality is, you know, they don't have a 300-pounder on the defensive line. And, you know, that's that that can work at the FCS level, certainly. But uh, what does it look like in the front seven for Eastern, where, again, they've got some guys who are good at their caliber and good at their level, but when you don't have, uh, you know, the size of bodies and the length of bodies, that's needed uh, against certainly uh, the caliber of opponent of Oregon, but you know, caliber opponents of FBS teams because they also play at, at Florida later this year. Uh, what does the front seven look like? Because that's, like I say, that's probably an area where Oregon's going to have a pretty decided advantage. Yeah, they rotate in a lot of guys. I think last game I saw them play at least eight or nine defensive linemen. Uh, so that's what they try to do. They try to play fresh guys 
Uh, even a guy, you know, Mitchell Johnson, I would argue, I mean, I didn't look at the snap counts, but I'm sure he played almost every snap at defensive end. Uh, but the other spot, you know, they've got guys like Brock Harrison. He's out there. Um, it'll be interesting to see if DeBorier McLean is back. He was He's listed as the starter, uh, but he didn't play in game one. Uh, and I didn't see him in the scrimmages either this offseason. So we'll see there. But especially that D-tackle spot, they bring in four or five guys throughout. Now, Josh Jerome is, like you said, I mean, he's a... He's an all-conference kind of guy um, at the at the defensive tackle, but he's you know he's listed at 280 pounds, six one. So that's why they try to do it there. Um, I think they they often do well. Last game they lined up with a lot of defensive backs. Um, so in in some sense they they really do want to try to win that battle up front with the front six, ideally with the linebackers in there. Uh, but that is going to be a challenge going against a bigger Oregon offensive line. I know I asked you this in the um, uh, Q and A, and folks can check that out on OregonLive.com uh, on Friday when, when we have that up as well. But uh, truly, Dan, what, what is considered success here? Because I understand, historically speaking, Eastern has certainly fared pretty well in some of these games. Again, they beat UNLV in the opener in that double overtime game last year. Some folks certainly remember, Ducks fans, I think some of them remember, because not, not, always, not I think it was a standalone game Thursday night. It was the last game that Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was Marcus Royal, of course, coaching at UNLV. So some folks were watching that game. But the other aspect of it is, is yeah, but when they last played in the Pac-12, they played Washington in an opener. They played Washington State, I think, the year before that. They played Texas Tech. For as many times as Eastern has fared well and even won at the FBS level, they've also been on the wrong end of some pretty lopsided scores uh, against some of the better teams in either the Pac-12, Big 12, whatever the case may be. So how are you defining what success will look like uh, for the Eagles here on Saturday? I think if they can keep it close for a quarter or two, um, and if they can lose, you know, I wrote in the Q&A, if they can basically keep their total at at least half of what the Ducks have, um, if they can show that they can move the ball against a defensive Oregon's caliber, if they can get some stops in there to kind of build some confidence, and ultimately if they can just get out healthy, you know, they've got a huge game coming up in two weeks against Montana State, which is, is a from a practical standpoint, it's more important than this Oregon game. Yeah. Uh, in terms of where they're going to land, if they can beat Montana State in two weeks and they have a bye between, then I think they're, they're setting up to be a contender in the big sky. But um, so, so in some sense, they just have to make sure they come out healthy. And I know that that sounds cliche and no coach wants to tell his team that. And I'm sure that that's not what they're telling them. Um, they're telling them they have a chance. But I, I do think the coaches will be and I think the team would be good with being competitive, showing that they can kind of stick with a team like Oregon. And, and to your, you know, I don't know if you've mentioned this, but the loss against Georgia last week, I imagine the Ducks are going to be dang feisty and, and they're not going to take the Eagles lightly at all. Yeah, I, I don't think um, not not that there was no good way for Oregon to be entering this game from Eastern's perspective. Um, sure. had Oregon somehow pulled off a, a miraculous upset. Uh, you know, I don't think they, that Eastern could have been counting on them looking past them uh, and, and still kind of in the hangover phase of, you know, what a what a win. Um, a closer loss again. I don't think Eastern's really getting much of a benefit there. And uh, the forty-nine to three loss. Uh, no, I think that <laughs> that might have actually been the worst of all options yeah, I think from Eastern's so. perspective. Yeah. Uh, because yes, this is a team who, uh, from a motivation standpoint, it won't be lacking. From an area of focus standpoint, it won't be lacking. I think the question that Oregon fans have uh, is obviously all of the areas of. Uh, that were just so problematic against Georgia. And not just because, you know, look, Darnell Washington's on one team in America and he ain't on Eastern Washington. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they don't have to worry about that. Um, but 
broken tackles and missed tackles was an issue at times last season. It was an issue again. Well, it was week one. All right, well, now here's your chance to show in week two against, yes, a team who has smaller players in stature. Does the defense look better? Um, but not just that. Is it takeaways? Third down stops uh, offensively. You know, Bo Nix, it wasn't just that Georgia was so much bigger, stronger, and faster uh, on the defensive side relative to Oregon's offense. That wasn't it at all. You know, at times it was just flat-out decision-making. Well, all right, the speed of the game may be a hair and it ticks slower because Eastern's at the FCS level, but ultimately, is your decision right or wrong? Um, you know, whether or not the the speed exacerbates that a bit uh, or, or points out uh, flaws more, that's kind of a, a side point. To me, it's more about decision-making on offense. And like I say, some of the areas defensively uh, that they have had issues for beyond just last week. So from a offensive execution standpoint for Eastern, like you talk about, they obviously – they, they have their system, and they know they're going to be passing the ball. How did they look? I realize, yes, Tennessee State. But even going back to last season, because uh, we're talking more about of a system standpoint, as a third-down offense uh, and functionality, what's what's kind of the way that, that they go about uh, moving the ball and, and you know keeping the sticks moving at times? Is it obviously relying on the passing game pretty heavily? But is that kind of the area that, uh, that Ducks fans should be kind of keeping an eye on uh, when it comes down to third-down defense on Saturday? Well, I think if the Ducks can make the Eagles have to only throw, then I think that's going to be a problem for the Eagles. I think they have to be able to move the ball in first and second down a little bit with running the ball. They love to use the right receiver screens, as so many teams do now. Uh, they love to move their receivers around and get them different looks. Um, but at the end of the day, the bottom line is if, if the Ducks are in that backfield and, you know, the, the Eagles need to rush for more yards than they did last week. Uh, when Gunnar Talkington was their leading rusher with 60 yards, I think it was, um, that's just not going to be good enough. I think they need to be able to dominate a little bit more in that way. And uh, so at the same time, they're going to rely on Talkington to hit those small windows, to hit his receivers who are experienced. They have great hands. Efton Chisholm the third is going to be one of the great receivers, I think, at Eastern uh, when we're all said and done. So it's going to be a challenge nevertheless. And looking at all the various notes, uh, for Eastern specifically, Dan, tell me, uh, add a little bit of degree of context here. This turnover margin stat, I realize anybody <laughs> yeah. could point it out and say, hey, you know, when you win the turnover margin, obviously your your probability of winning goes up fairly significantly. But their turnover margin stat, I mean, how basically were they on the wrong end of the turnover margin all those times when they were playing FBS opponents? And that's part of it or how much of it is held true because again their fbs record while not incredible again for historical purposes for, for folks who aren't as familiar eastern is 2 and 13 all time against the pac-12 uh, and again i mentioned the last time they played washington i believe in the 2019 season they played uh, washington state 2018 texas tech before that uh, but 2 and 13 all time in the pac-12 but they have a win over wazoo win over oregon state historically uh, again they beat unlv we realize mountain west but nevertheless but their turnover margin uh, statistic is pretty ridiculous in that they're 76 in two when they've won the turnover battle over the last 14 years. Now, obviously, we know the lion's share of that is at the FCS level, but has that translated at all in some of these FBS games, Dan? Because my goodness, that that's just hard to do. I mean, winning <laughs> 76 and two, that's that's it's hard to be much better than that. Yeah, I think I think they've always really preached with their quarterbacks, and they've had such good quarterback play, and those guys have taken care of the football so well. I, have, I don't remember what it was last year with, with uh, UNLV, because granted, and that UNLV game, you know, if, if we look at that now, that was not a great UNLV team. Um, 
they were, you know, they didn't have, they played multiple quarterbacks in that game and they were playing against the best player at the SCS level. So there was, and even then that took a, a goal line stand in overtime for the Eagles to be able to win that game. So I, I do think that that turnover margin stat does hold true in a lot of these games. Um, they just, they have been opportunistic on defense, even this season and last, you know, they gave up a lot of yards, but they would find a way to get stops. They would find a way to force fumbles. Um, so they are, they preach that on defense as well. And they're just so dang careful with the football and offense. I think it's more that, I think it's more the offense being careful than the defense being outstanding. Last couple of things for you, Dan. I know I've taken a look and seen some of the stuff you've written this week. Uh, you pointed out, uh, as, as one might imagine that, uh, a team in the uh, Big Sky and in the region and the Pacific Northwest that uh, does have some players from the state of Oregon, has some players from Eugene even uh, on the roster. Uh, so for folks who, uh, again, are going to the game, uh, folks who are from the Eugene area who are looking for some familiar faces or have, uh, you know either went to high school uh, in the area, uh, went to Hudson Stadium a bunch growing up. I know you wrote about that. Uh, give folks an idea as to some of the Oregonians on uh, Eastern roster who will uh, be a part of this one. Yeah, so Jaron Banks is one. He's He's been a bit of an unknown here because you know, last year the Eagles had four seniors basically playing all of their minutes at linebacker. Um, and so then Jaron Banks came in. He he came in, I, I think the guy said he came in late in the spring. And so he's been with them and he he was starting. He took, I think, every snap on defense um, or just about. And he was he was pretty dang good and very important at a key spot, obviously, in the defense. So he's one, number 54, that people will see. Uh, the other is Mitchell Johnson. He's a Wesleyan graduate. Um, I believe he mentioned he is uh, he's best friends with, is it the center, I think, for the Ducks? Yep. Uh, and so it's, there's a lot of those personal connections. Looking through, though, those are mostly the guys that, that people might recognize from Oregon. They have a lot of guys who are maybe role players at this point. Uh, who are playing that? Who are playing a little bit more? Uh, maybe tight end Dylan Ingram. He's their starting tight end. He's from Camas uh, across the river in Washington. So some of those guys that we'll be seeing, but definitely look out for Mitchell Johnson uh, and Jaron Banks on the defensive side. Last two things for you then are uh, one: what was the thought process uh, institutionally? What have they offered by way of explanation in terms of? It's one thing to come down the road and play at Oregon. It's another to a couple of weeks later then say, all right, we're going to go cross country to the swamp and Ben Hill Griffin stadium in Gainesville and play. Uh, all right. I don't, I don't know. I mean, when they scheduled the game, they didn't know that, you know, first year coach at Napier and what they were going to do uh, and Anthony Richardson or anything else. But nevertheless, why, why, <laughs> why, why would well, anyone, and, and not just in general, like I've seen FCS teams play two FBS games. I've, I've covered it before myself, uh, teams who've done that, but it's usually on short road trips. This is a cross country trip later in the season. Um, when they've already played an FBS opponent in the region, they're going all the way to Florida, and Florida now is a top 15 team with a quarterback <laughs> with people comparing either Vince Young or Cam Newton. So why are they doing this beyond the money, which is obvious? Yeah. It's actually a pretty simple It's a simple thing because if you look at their, uh, their history of playing FBS teams, there's not one in 2020, and this was a game that was scheduled for 2020, and then it got canceled with the COVID season. And so um, it would have fit, fit a whole lot better in that year. And honestly – you know, if you got Eric Berrier as your quarterback at that point, he was pretty seasoned. Uh, that not that that game necessarily looks a ton of winnable, but it looked better there. But yes, it does look um, pretty difficult here, especially because, like I mentioned, they've got that Montana State game before, uh, and then they've got a, a big game against Weber after that. So that's not ideal. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you're going to get seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from a school, I think you're going to kind of have to let them pick when they want to do it. And this is when it fit for Florida. Yeah, that said, nowadays the the price of poker has gone up. 
Um, I, I you know, <laughs> I, I, I wish for Eastern sake that they would have gotten more out of Florida than that. I can, I could try and reach out to Scott Strickland and see if he's got any, any SEC <laughs> network money hanging out underneath, uh, you know, the new facility for it. My goodness. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that really stuck out at two. Well, and, that, thought, yeah. and now they've got a bit of a break because next year it's Fresno state the year after it's Nevada and then it's Boise state. Uh, they don't have another one, at least on the schedule now until Washington in 2026. So it's going to be maybe a couple of years, but I could see them adding an Oregon State game. I could see them adding sure. uh, Washington State again in the next couple of years if something comes open. Absolutely. Well, again, it's kind of a given by way of outcome, I would say, Dan. I mean, you, you never say never, I suppose. I mean, FCS teams do pull off some upsets in the season, but we know that uh, on last week, notwithstanding that Oregon is still uh, obviously an incredibly talented team, you know, by every metric and, ro- you know, anything you can come up with, uh, one of the top 10 most talented rosters at the FBS level, regardless of what you know, current polls say and everything else because of 49 to three. So how do you see it playing out? And uh, we've already defined what, what success may look like, but how do you actually see it uh, looking on Saturday now? You know, I see Oregon being able to run the ball early and being able to get through some gaps and, and then that'll open up the pass. And I think Oregon's going to have little trouble scoring points uh, against this defense. I, I do think the Eagles will be able to put together some drives. I think they'll be able to find some windows in that defense, but just, just not enough. Um, I, I would be surprised if this game isn't out of hand by halftime. I tend to agree with you. Well, he is Dan Thompson of the Spokesman Review. You can follow him on Twitter at Thompson underscore DS. And again, look forward to seeing you on Saturday, Dan. Thanks for all the time. And again, you can check out Dan's stuff in the Spokesman Review. Check out his answers to our Q&A on OregonLive.com. Thanks so much, Dan. You're welcome. And uh, that will do it for this edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, a reminder, subscribe wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Give us a like, five-star review, the whole thing. So that way, if if you are subscribed, it just goes right in your normal flow of content uh, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. You don't miss an episode. And if you give us those five-star reviews, it helps other people find the show as well. 